1: And welcome back everybody to another episode of benched with Bubba episode 228 gonna ramp up some more fantasy baseball talk and I uh, got a special guest a reoccurring guest find his work over at pitcherlist.com and Razzball and just great work all over the Twitter at fantasy underscore Esquire Dan Richards Dan how we doing my friend
2: I'm good man thank you for that all too kind intro uh, thank you again for having me back on and yeah I'm excited to talk some baseball it's getting really boring waiting for the season to start. So this week's been kind of crazy with trades and non-tenders. So we got some good stuff to talk about.
1: Definitely. like I, I thought we were going to be in trouble for, for news for this podcast since I talked about a lot of previous work a couple nights ago. And then the dominoes just kept falling and falling and falling. And I'm like, this is not the MLB hot stove we're used to, Dan. This is amazing. And I'm a big fan of it. I'm good with this every year if they want to do it this way. A couple little nuggets every day. I'm a big fan there. Uh, you mentioned it, and we don't we don't have it on the outline, so we don't have to go deep on it at all. Just what's your thoughts in general? It doesn't have to be a fantasy perspective, but it is a baseball discussion that's going to affect fantasy one way or another. All these non-tendered guys, and it's strictly financial. It's strictly dumb, but it's in the rules. How surprised are you with some of the names that got uh, basically let go?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I was pretty surprised to see guys like michael franco and uh other big name players just not you know resigned and it's going to be a thing where you know organizations are realizing that they can add um players from their minor league levels up to the majors and they don't need to pay their veterans anything um and they can pay the mlb minimum to the minor leaguers um and basically in some instances get similar value in terms of actual play on the field especially those teams that aren't competitive so it doesn't matter whether they you know they're tanking so it doesn't matter whether they re-sign someone or not um and it's it's probably going to have a big impact on um the cba negotiations in a couple years um i'm hoping there's no strike i'm sure you are too but
1: you know we'll see yeah it's feeling like there's going to be one, unfortunately. But at the same time, it's like both sides have already acknowledged there's such a big issue that they're talking about ramping up talks way earlier than normal to try to avoid that. Thank goodness. Um, I just, I'm just, i usually a, half, a glasses half full type guy. I just have a really bad feeling because we've never seen these type the last few years with free agency and now these non-tendering deals. We haven't seen anything like this before. And this is like kind of terrifying. But at the same time, a guy like Zach Wheeler gets paid today, so that was absolutely outstanding to see. We saw Moustakis and Grandal already get paid after kind of having to, to bet on themselves recently. Hopefully, there's less betting on themselves going forward for other players, but Wheeler gets five years, $118 million to go play for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, different park, obviously, than uh, in New York, but we've seen Wheeler Wheeler do it. 182 innings, 195 innings the last two years, sub-4 ERAs, uh, an ex-fip of 406 last year, 381 the year before. He's been consistent the last two years. After previous years of you know injuries and whatnot, going over to Philadelphia is a little scary at times. But from a fantasy perspective, Dan, how do you feel with uh, Zach Wheeler heading to Philadelphia, a division he's still very familiar with?
2: I for, for fantasy, I think it's it's doesn't it doesn't change too much um, in terms of just home run hitting. It's it's. City Field was surprisingly bad for pitchers last year, so it might actually be an improvement for him, and we'll talk about that more later. But, um, you know, win potential, like they're both above-average teams, the Mets and the Phillies. Um, you know, he had a weird year last year where, if you remember, he was barely startable for about half the season, and he'd go out and he'd throw a decent game, and then he'd give up like six or seven runs uh, right after that. And he, his strikeout rate um, was about 26% um, in the first half of last year. And then it dropped to about 20% in the second half Mm -hmm. when he was actually performing better and you could start him. So it's weird. Um, like he may have gotten unlucky in the beginning and then lucky in the second half when he made a change. And, um, he's obviously going to be a guy you're interested in in, on a good team and he can pitch deep and, um, he'll probably give you a lot of innings, but you know, I I like it more for the Phillies in real life than I think it matters for fantasy.
1: And that's a good way to put it. For real life, it makes that Phillies rotation so much better, obviously, with, you know, joining Noil, Nola, maybe Arietta finds a little semblance. He doesn't have to be the big guy now. He can be the third or the fourth option in that rotation. They got some other young arms they can play with. It does add the depth they need there because the Braves keep getting better and better. We'll talk about them in a minute. But um, it, it's a very good real-life move. I'm with you. Like, I like Zach Wheeler. I thought he'd take a bigger step this last year. And you mentioned that he finished strong in the second half which which I like, which is good to see, but at the same time it's like going to Philadelphia, you where where Zach Wheeler's probably going to go in drafts, you're going to want him to be a little better than he is. I'm not saying he was bad by any means, but um like I got I got your uh pitcher list, 80p's up here. Like right he went 118 in a 12 team league. Is that too high for you?
2: No, I think that's fine. You know, it's it's a little it's probably right around, if not a little later than when he went last year, and now he's basically put up two seasons that were very similar. Um, so, you know, one eighteen sounds about right because he's clearly got a ceiling. He's got uh, four, I think, four, maybe even five, really good pitches um, when he's on. You know, he can toe the rubber with the best of them, and um, yeah, I mean, I like I like the move for the Phillies a lot. I think they need it to remain competitive, like you said, against the Braves. And like you were also saying, there's no one else in that rotation that's any good besides Nola. So Arietta's is kind of a bust for them. And I don't know who else they're even throwing out there these days, like Vince Velazquez and Zach Eflin. They they needed him. And um, for fantasy, I think he's fine. So I, I don't think a lot changes.
1: All right, let's go to those Braves. They, uh, they've they been very, very active to start the year. And usually it's been in the bullpen. Well, they went and got a starter this past year. They went and got uh, Dallas Keiko midway through the year. They didn't want to wait too long this time. They went and got Cole Hamels. And it was pretty cool to hear there's a bunch of teams in on Cole Hamels. And Cole Hamels just wanted a one-year deal, which was very surprising. So one year, $18 million to go to the Atlanta Brave. That's a, it's cheaper than the qualifying offer, for crying out loud. So you can't really go wrong with this situation. And he was outstanding with the Cubs this last year. Uh, 3-8-1 ERA, 4-3-X, that's a little sketch. But gave you reliable innings, got the job done on the mound, doesn't have to be the ace anymore. You already have Soroka and Freed and company in Atlanta, Ballpark's definitely not as ideal as Wrigley Field, at least on a non-windy day. What's your thoughts on Cole Hamels with the Braves? For a real baseball perspective, I really like it for the Braves. You know, they get a proven guy.
2: Uh he had over a nine K per nine last year, despite being 35 years old. So he's clearly, you know, figuring it out without velocity, and that has staying power, as we see with a guy like Zach Ranky. Zach Ranke. Um, but the Braves don't really have to commit to him because they're only paying him for one year. So You know, I mean, Hamels had that one down year in 2017 when we thought he was basically done. Um, You know, his strikeout rate drops. Peripherals were ugly. But, you know, he started trading sinkers for four seamers, which is pretty common. Um, And, you know, he went from a good team to a great team, um, a team that's on the rise. So his win potential definitely increases. They just came off winning their division. They signed Will Smith, so their bullpen should be pretty strong. Uh, They already had a few big names in there um they got a great lineup i mean it's it's a it's a nice landing spot for hamels and it's really just a durability question he was he was very good last year for a long stretch until uh, he got hurt and then he came back and he wasn't really the same so you know with a full healthy season if he could throw like 180 innings he could be really good for fantasy a nice buy low
1: yeah i agree there there could be some interesting there uh options there with hamels it's just kind of limit the damage in atlanta take advantage of some of the road ballparks, again, not Philly, but Miami, even with their fences in, uh, New York and whatnot, should help quite a bit there with Cole Hamills. But it is, it is an interesting move. It's a great move for the Braves. It's a phenomenal move for the Braves. I was very like, okay, that made too much sense. Why are teams not doing stuff like this? This is what you know, contenders should be trying to get as a veteran. Any needs eater that's going to you know for a reasonable deal. So it made a lot of sense there. The Angels are a team that probably could use the Cole Hamills, but I think they're looking for a different Cole down the line here pretty soon. But oh, they yeah. made a trade for Dylan Bundy, and I've talked about him a lot towards the end of last year on this podcast and other shows. I've mentioned him from time to time on my DFS shows, talked about him once or twice in the offseason. I know Dylan Bundy's ugly. I get it. The The overall peripheral stats are ugly, not him personally, but mm-hmm. the stats. But the last like half of the year or so, you saw a different Dylan Bundy, a guy that used his slider a little more, some of his different pitch mixes. And he still had the the occasional blip on the radar, but way, way more efficient starts than normal, way more quality starts than normal. And the home runs kind of dropped down a little bit. It it was pretty impressive to watch the change with um, Dylan Bundy. And it's not going to hurt being out of Candom yards. What's your thoughts on Bundy in 2020? Because I'm afraid with this move, his hype train might go too high. And I might not want to pay the price he's going to get to. But I do like the talent.
2: Going back to what you said before about the non-tenders,
1: um, you know,
2: it's just it's kind of wild. Like he was their best pitcher, you know, and they're and they're getting rid of him. Um But that said, it's um it's probably a good thing for his value. He'll go from a place where it's basically the one of, if not the best, hitters parks in baseball. He's and he's getting out of there, he's getting out of the AL East. Um going to the Angels, which is a much bigger stadium. Um, hopefully they can just fix him. Um, Michael Aheado for Pitcher List wrote a great article this week on Dylan Bundy. And then, of course, he gets let go and <laughs> traded. Um, and if, you, if you read that... Yeah, it never fails. And if you read that article, he makes this interesting point where he looks at Bundy's game log and he sees that there are several games at the end of the season last year where he changed his four-seamer for a sinker which is the opposite of what most pitchers are doing but it helped him a lot because he's so home run prone and that fastball that he normally throws he just throws it middle middle and it gets smacked so he clearly doesn't have good command of it Uh, it's one of the worst pitches in baseball it's got a negative 21.7 p-val last year and a negative 40 over his career which is horrible wow Uh, yeah and the sinker actually had a positive p val last year so if he if he I mean, if, if the Angels see what we see and they make some changes, there's something there. Like there was a stretch a couple of years ago where he uh, he threw like six or seven starts in a row that were like incredible. And then he went out and gave up like six runs without recording an out. And that's, yeah. you, you know, I it's always a possibility with him, but if they fix the pitch mix a little bit, it's going to a better park. Like he could be a nice, uh, be a nice like late round flyer in fantasy or like a guy you pick up off the waiver wire after a month, you know?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like this could be a sneaky move if they if they utilize him properly there. And it's amazing how many teams don't utilize these guys properly. I already know uh I saw Nick Nick and uh, Alex from the pitch list Nick Pollock, Alex Fast were already kinda like bummed that Wheeler's going to Philadelphia because they don't utilize the high fastball and you know, all all these things like that. Well, we need what well, we need more teams to figure out what works. And Eno Seris made a good comment after the Bundy trade. He said, Imagine if they get Garrett Cole. You'll have Cole, Heaney, Bundy, Canning, and Shohei Otani. That's a pretty solid starting five for uh, yep. Anaheim. So uh, definitely something to keep in mind there. It's, and it's amazing just what one little move can do, a couple prospects. Uh, could be a nice nice situation there. Uh, let's talk a couple of uh, Miami Marlins, a couple guys that got non tender Actually, these guys didn't even get non-tendered. They just got DFA'd. So uh, they didn't even get to – well, technically, I guess they were non-tendered. They didn't get to wait till the finale like everybody else. They were just let go way earlier. And one is Johnny VR, a guy that in the fantasy industry is a polarizing individual because people don't believe the offensive hype. They believe he can run, but the power, the average, there's a lot of non-believers and there's the other ones that love everything there is to love about Johnny VR. Well, the Marlins loved everything about Johnny VR. They're willing to pay him nine to $10 million, unlike the Orioles. And they're going to put him in third base and the outfield to start the year. That was kind of interesting to me. It means guys like Nick Birdie, who people like a lot, aren't going to get as much playing time in the outfield. Um, uh, Anderson and some Brian Anderson has going to have to play more outfield than third base. It's going to mess with some of those rotations. But let's just talk Johnny VR for now. John, Jonathan VR in Miami. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just wild to see the again the Orioles dump. Uh, you know, they're one of their best players, a four win player, <laughs> who is well yeah, worth. He was $10 very good. Yeah. You know, I I think that he would have at least garnered some prospects worth ten million dollars at the trade deadline if they wanted to trade That was him. my
1: that was my thought. It's like you're not gonna win this year. Why not let him play a couple of months, see what he can do and trade him?
2: I yeah, my guess is the Marlins must think that whatever value in terms of attendance that he brings to the stadium, plus whatever they can trade him for at uh the trade deadline is worth more than ten million dollars plus whatever they're giving the Orioles right now. So yeah. um Maybe the Marlins see something the Orioles don't, or maybe the Orioles see something the Marlins don't. Maybe no team will really pay for him. I don't. I don't know. But it's from a fantasy perspective, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, he played 162 games last season, and he needed every single last plate appearance to hit 24 home runs. So he's moving from an extreme hitter's park to the seventh worst in terms of turning barrels into home runs, which we'll talk about later. But the, you know, the, the Marlins are. I heard they're bringing in some of their outfield walls. Um, And he's got guaranteed playing time, which was not a given considering he could have ended up somewhere else where he's just a utility role like he was a couple of years ago for the Brewers. So, you know, he should get a lot of stolen base opportunities, He's probably not going to hit 24 home runs again. But, um, you know, just I would I would proceed with caution. I wouldn't be jumping on him in drafts. I he could be the kind of guy that bottoms out really early or gets traded into a utility role halfway through the season.
1: It is tough with VR. I've always been a big VR fan at the right price. Uh, I took him in like the fourth round, I think last year in 15 teamers. I know that might've been early for some, but I'll, I'll take it then right now. He's going like, I've seen him go early to late third rounds and I don't know if I can quite get there. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a push because the thing that made him work in Baltimore, like you mentioned, he gets that extra ballpark to help him hit with power Miami. I don't care how much he moved the fence, and the pictures showed like maybe five feet. They weren't like massive moves. Well, yeah. VR doesn't hit a bunch of thirty foot plus home runs that go into the stands. Like, <laughs> so let's just be real about the the possibility of him just cranking them out of uh, Miami, and and then again if he gets traded, maybe he goes to a team where he's platooning. So exactly, it's a tough deal. Tough deal with Jonathan VR. The other move the Marlins made is the Milwaukee Brewers uh, got rid of uh, Jesus Aguilar. I got rid of him. They traded to Tampa Bay last year. Tampa Bay got rid of Jesus Aguilar. He goes to Miami now. And this is an interesting job because they're saying he's going to be the everyday first baseman. Garrett Cooper will play the outfield. Again, they have a lot of young talent. They're throwing in the outfield now instead of their normal positions. But what's your thoughts on Jesus Aguilar, who let a lot of people down last year? I was not a fan going into last year, but maybe a new change, a new change of scenery will help this man out.
2: Yeah. Marlin's making moves. I, it's strange, um, you know, cause they already had Garrett Cooper at first base. So ESPN said they're going to platoon them. Um, Garrett Cooper was pretty decent. he put up 1.3 F4 in about two thirds of the season. So my guess is they maybe move him in the, into the outfield and let Aguilar play first base. Um, they're also both righty. So I don't understand how they would platoon them. Um, you know, my best guess is that they're betting on Aguilar breaking out. And then, you know, like he hit 35 home runs in 2018. So maybe he could do that again and and then trade him at the deadline, um, for whatever he's worth. And it's a small investment. He's only costing them $2.5 million, but for fantasy it's, he is unlike, uh, VR, the kind of guy that can, um, hit the ball really far into the stands. So it may not matter which park he's in. Um, it's obviously difficult to hit home runs in Miami. It's not a great situation. Um, hopefully he has some playing time. Um, but yeah, I, my guess would be not, I'm, I'm not drafting him at all. And I'm, I'm going to assume no one is. Um, and he's maybe he's a guy you pick up if, if you see something in the first couple weeks,
1: you know? Yeah, it's tough. He's going to, he's a streaky hitter. Ran hot a couple years ago, in my opinion. We saw more of what I feel is the reality. Last year, I even had people disagree with me last year. I kept saying, just drop him. You don't want him. It it worked out last year. Everything can change. Guys can develop new hit tools. Who knows? I just don't see that developing in Miami. But you never know. So we'll see with Jesus Aguilar. But you kind of hinted at barrels and and ballpark factors and everything. And and I wanted to get you on a couple weeks ago. I had some things take place where I couldn't get you on because it wouldn't have worked out so well. But we have you now. So let's talk about it. Because I had you on last year talking about uh, a home run metric that you were working on. This kind of works with it, I think, a little more and takes it even deeper and gives a different angle to it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, it's barrels and ballpark factors. And what I love about it is barrels are the thing I use a ton. I know a lot of people use a ton. I love Baseball Savant. I can go down Baseball Savant rabbit holes for days. Just clicking on things, looking at the cool little bars, red things line up, then take deeper dives so on and so forth. And that's how a lot of us just kind of get lost. But uh, you factored in ballpark factors to go with it. So let's start out with just, we'll keep it with the simple part, the barrels. What were you noticing with say barrels, barrels battered ball events, stuff like that that kind of started making you look at that. And then we'll switch into the ballpark factors.
2: Yeah. So um, a barrel is a ball that's hit between, for those who don't know, uh, 26 and 30 degrees. So a nice home run angle. Um, at least 98 miles per hour. And then the launch angle band expands as the ball is hit harder. Um, so just looking at 2019 data and isolating balls in play. So, you know, ignoring plate appearances that end in strikeouts and walks, uh, things like that. Barrels explained about 78% of the variance in all home runs. So, of, for balls in play, home runs were explained by barrels about 78% of the time. Then 80 of all home runs were the product of barrels. So, you know, most, the vast majority of home runs hit in MLB were also barrels. They were also these balls hit between 26 and 30 degrees, at least 90 miles per hour. So given that strong relationship, it makes sense to use barrels as a proxy for home run hitting and a way to measure park factors. Um, So I used basically home runs as a percentage of barrels hit. And league-wide, the average was 59.6% of barrels became home runs. So on average, for every barrel hit, uh, there's 0.596% chance of a home run produced. And then if um, barrels were becoming home runs at a greater rate than that in a given venue, then I labeled that venue as a hitter's park and vice versa. But I think that a helpful way to... Conceptualize it is looking at home runs as a percentage of total barrels in a venue. Mm-hmm. So that standardizes uh, the competition across ballparks. Um, I,
1: I like that a lot. Like, I, I'm looking at your your chart now, and you mentioned Eno Serres. I actually had Eno on last year when he came out with this park factor because it was very surprising. A couple of ballparks that stood out on there that yep. uh, even some of yours are surprising. We'll talk about those. Um, the, the home run per barrel percentage makes a ton of sense. Uh, how you you broke it down, you know, if 82% of barrels are home runs and all these different correlating factors. So you do how many home runs in each ballpark, how many barrels in that ballpark, I'm assuming gives your home run per barrels. The park factor column, was that just, where did you get the park factor?
2: So I took the standard deviation of Mm -hmm. um, the set. So the different ballparks, and then I calculated Z scores, which are um, the, they basically measure the amount of spread from the mean, again, the standard deviation. Mm-hmm. So if the mean is 59.6% of barrels become home runs, uh, mm-hmm. league wide, then, um, a Z score of one, which is about minute made park. Um, so yeah. if okay. that means that minute made park is one full standard deviation away from the mean. So at minute made park, 68% of, uh, barrels became home runs whereas the league average was 59.6%. So that's a full standard deviation away from the mean, and it goes in the reverse as well. So target field uh, was one standard deviation away from the mean by being a 51% conversion rate, and that's a likely pitcher's park.
1: No, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. So when we're looking at it, like the, the more heavy pitcher parks, like target field, Tropicana, Kauffman, Comerica, Oracle, Fenway, Fenway always surprises people because they, they picture the green monster, but they forget like right center field and right. Uh, that, that's just a deep alley back there. Center field, right field, right center. I mean, yeah. they, they forget about that portion of the ballpark. Um, when we're thinking pitcher's parks, because those ones kind of all make sense. You got Marlins Park. Uh, you got Chase. I'm, uh, I'm assuming that factors in the humidor now. Uh, you got PNC, Nationals, Bush, Wrigley, Oakland. Was there any real surprisers on the, that side of things?
2: Yeah, I mean, seeing that Oakland um, had basically a league average um, home run to barrel conversion rate, um, or sorry, barrel to home run conversion rate, was was surprising because it's huge, and we think of Oakland as this vast pitcher's park uh, where it's very hard to hit a home run. Now, one caveat I want to give is that um, some of this can be influenced. So it's only 2019 data, and some of it okay. can be influenced by the actual barrels that are hit themselves. Like, the, let me let me back up for one second. Looking at home runs as a percentage of total barrels standardizes the competition across ballparks. So if you just look at a home runs hit, if, if you wanted to do this and just look at the total home runs hit in a park and say, ah, well, you know, the most home runs were hit in Baltimore, therefore Baltimore is the best place to hit home runs, you wouldn't be controlling for competition. That's the point of this. That's why we use home runs as a percentage of barrels. Um so that says okay let's see how many home runs came as a result of these extremely well hit balls irrespective of how many amazing hitters or terrible pitchers played in the parks. Um that said not all barrels are created equal. So yeah. you know the guys in Oakland the ho- the home players the divisional players who go to play there um if they are hitting their barrels on average a lot harder than some other players then it's possible that they're converting barrels into home runs at a greater rate. That this is not accounting for. So this can change next year. It's just what happened this past year in terms of barrels becoming home runs. Um, you know, maybe next year, Oakland is more of a pitcher's park because Matt Olson gets hurt and then the barrels that are hit there aren't hit as hard and they aren't converted into home runs as frequently. Um, Another one, one more quick caveat is that I actually got berated by Todd Zola for this, but <laughs> these, these park factors are just for home run hitting. They're not general park factors. So gotcha. Good point. certain, certain player like certain places are, are actual pitchers parks and maybe lower down on this list or actual hitters parks and maybe higher up on this list because, um, run scoring is still very high there. For example, at Coors Field, um, but hitting home runs on barrels is hard to do there or harder to do there.
1: Um, a question that's not technically on your, your page here. You mentioned that the barrels are, aren't created equal because some are hit harder than others. And uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've asked many people and I either don't get an answer or I don't get an answer. I can understand. And (laughs) I don't know if there is, I don't know if there is a a correct answer or not. I just want to get your opinion on it with that bouncy ball we saw last year. Uh Um, how much of a factor do you think that increased barrels or or, or stuff along those lines? because I tried to get answers from guys of do you think this is why they saw you know certain hitters saw such jumps on things, but other ones didn't. It, it was kind of a weird dynamic. I hope I'm not blabbering too much, but I'm trying to trying to rationalize what the bouncy ball did to the i guess quality of contact. I know it makes the ball go farther, but the quality of contact does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I would say that if you ran a stackass search for, the average barrel rate um, or even just the total barrels that were hit last year that would be higher than in years prior Um, the average exit velocity is probably also higher the average (laughs) exit velocity on fly balls is also probably higher I mean I I, I'm not doing that right now so I can't tell you for sure but just given that there were more home runs hit I would think that the ball was actually hit harder and if that's because the ball is different it's possible but it, it doesn't it's not like the barrel rate is going to stay the same and home runs are going to go up across the league. I think the barrel rate would move with it.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the target field one actually stands out to me because that's one of those where we saw the Twins hit so many home runs last year, but maybe they just did a lot of damage on the road. That's an interesting one. Uh, when we drop up down to the hitters' ballparks more so, the the top, uh, you will say, seven are over one standard deviation. You mentioned Minute Maid Park, Angel Stadium. City Field might surprise a lot of people. Miller Park, Oriole Park, Dodger Stadium, Great American Small Parks. So, like Dodger Stadium, <laughs> City Field, Angel Stadium, not really known as big pitchers' parks or home run parks, but they stood out a lot here. Is there anything specific you might have saw when looking at those?
2: I so if you one thing to note is that if you um this list doesn't account for non-barreled home runs. So gotcha. so like nineteen gotcha. percent of all home runs hit last year. Were not barreled so okay. if you, if you did account for those, and I'm not doing that, but if you did account for them, Minute Maid Park would be number one. If you just looked yep. at home runs hit over uh, barrels as opposed to home runs hit on barrels, um, the, the the list would change a little bit. Um, I didn't do that because I don't think that non-barreling home runs is a repeatable skill. So even if a ballpark did move up for a certain reason, I'm not sure it would stay that way the next year because the players that made it move up might not be able to. Sustain that. That said, you know I I think it's interesting. Eno's article had Oriole Park and Dodger Stadium also really high up. Um, I think he he may have found that Dodger Stadium was number one or Oriole Park was number one, right up there with Great American Ballpark. I think what this does tell you is that guys that may not have the best exit velocity but play in those parks and have been hitting home runs at surprising rates may continue to do so. You know, one one guy that comes to mind is Eugenio Suarez who plays in Cincinnati. Um, you know, he's very likely to continue hitting home runs, even though his, his exit velocity isn't great. Um, but he had an 80% home run to barrel conversion rate, which is way higher than the 59% league average, but he plays in Great American ballpark and the, the rate there is about 74%. So he really didn't outpace his home park rate by that much. Um, You know, Angel Stadium, you had a guy, Tommy LaStella, who barreled the ball nine times. And guess what? He hit a home run on every single one of those barrels there. So I was efficient. It's very efficient. And I was giving him a lot of crap in my predicted home runs articles because he was not hitting barrels, but he was hitting home runs. And the formula didn't like him for that reason. But it's possible he continues to do so. Um, or he's just inflating the, the ballpark factor here, and maybe Angel Stadium isn't that hitter-friendly, and he, he's just the reason why. I don't know, but um, City Field is definitely surprising, like you said, mm-hmm. and um, one example of that is is Pete Alonso, who hit 23 of his 53 home runs on just 26 barrels. Is, um, wow. Right. That's an 88.5 home run to barrel conversion rate. That's very, very high, well above the league average of about 60%. Um, so that, that may not continue, um, you know, or it might, (laughs) I don't know, but that's the point, um, is that some of these parks were surprising and they helped their hitters a little more than you might think.
1: How, uh, going forward, do you have any plans to keep, you know, maybe tinkering with this or how do you think we, we as fantasy players should utilize this kind of tool?
2: Here's how I think it's it's most helpful. First of all, I think it's more helpful for you evaluating hitters than pitchers because uh, giving up home runs is not a category, whereas home runs is a category in fantasy baseball, um, or seeded home runs, rather. But I think that you should use these um, in conjunction with your stat cast analysis and your fan analysis. So if you're looking at a player, like we, Pete Alonso is a good example, Um I know his exit velocity is high, but let's assume it wasn't as high. And he had converted all of these. He hit a lot of home runs and we didn't expect it. Um, Mm -hmm. or actually A.U. Henning Suarez is a better example. Um, he did hit a lot more home runs than we expected. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that he plays in great American ballpark half the time and that he is likely to outperform his exit velocity, even if it's not an, an average launch angle, even if they're not excellent. Um, Whereas if we're looking at a guy like JD Martinez who lost like 10 home runs last year and we're wondering why, you know, I mean, he's playing in Fenway and it is the hardest place in baseball to convert a home run into a barrel into a home run. So his conversion rate at home might stay low. Those home runs might not come back. Um, It's, it's just, even if, even if his exit velocity is really high, it's just a good way to use, um, to evaluate players peripherals in context.
1: Well, let's have fun with it then. Uh, like Mike Moustakis leaves Miller Park, which was almost a seventy percent uh, home run per barrel, uh, and he had, he's going to Great American Small Park now, which is almost seventy five percent. I know you tweeted out something about uh, his overlay of home runs. H- how big of a factor do you think that should be for fantasy? How much should we, you know, maybe try to increase his potential home runs?
2: I I I'm gonna say quite a bit. Not it's not because Miller Park was a great place to begin with, mm-hmm. but. Think of it relative to Kaufman when he was hitting about 30 home runs. Um, that was um, the, the home run to barrel conversion rate is 46% at Kaufman Stadium last year. The home run to barrel conversion rate at Great American Ballpark is 74%. So it's <laughs> Quite far more likely that on his barrels, he's going to earn home runs uh, next year. And it's so, yeah, like you said, I tweeted out that overlay of his um, fly balls and line drives at. Uh, great American ballpark. Um, Mm -hmm. Also all of his fly balls and line drives last year, but like smacked onto great American ballpark. And I counted 64 home runs there. Obviously, even if he does go to the reds, like he did, he's not going to play every single game there, but it's still, it's telling that, you know, if if he hit 40 next year, I wouldn't be shocked, you know, or 45.
1: No, that's awesome because yeah, obviously he's not going to play every game there, but still he's played half his games there now instead of playing nine. So uh, it's qu- quite an increase in production that might be coming Moose's way, which has me very excited as a longtime Moose fan. But um, any closing thoughts? I like the idea of, of you know comparing, especially guys changing locations and whatnot. Any closing thoughts on the the work you've done on barrels and ballpark factors?
2: One thing is that you know I'd I'd like to incorporate um, ballparks that boost non-barreled home runs. So, like pulled fly balls that go like three hundred and thirty five feet and become a home run at Yankee Stadium or minimade park i that's that is not accounted for here. I mean obviously, a lot of pulled fly balls are barrels, so those are accounted for, but the ones that aren 't and become home runs those nineteen percent of all home runs that are not barreled. I think there is some kind of way to incorporate it into here. I just don 't know how um i'm a little worried that i'm not sure it's repeatable, but at the same to by the same token like Alex Bregman and Yuli Gurriel went crazy last year. And a big part of that was because um, they were pulling fly balls into uh, the Crawford boxes at Maid Park. And so, it, you know, if you looked at this, you would say, well, you know, they're in a hitters park, but it's not one of the best hitters parks. Well, it might be for them specifically. And that's not really accounted for here. So um, if I, if I could incorporate it in some way, I'd like to look into that beyond just adding them in, because I don't think that they're as valuable as regular barrels, but, um, other than that, yeah, I, I just think you should um, you should just use these in conjunction with your normal analysis and, and how you evaluate players in context.
1: Sweet, can't wait to see where it keeps going. Uh, it's always fun checking out these new uh, tools to use as we get more and more data and smart people like yourself uh, dig into it for uh, the rest of us to uh, utilize it in a more efficient manner. Uh, let's look at the pitcherless mock drafts. I know the writers of picture lists, like yourself uh, did three mock drafts and you've, you've documented those and talked about those. And then there's three expert mock drafts. I was a part of one of them. And so there are 12 team mocks and now we have six drafts and an ADP that to put together, which is pretty awesome. And this is kind of a, a free flowing situation here. We're just going to kind of talk about things, maybe some guys that stand out at, at weird prices, but just for fun, um, the top 12 picks, so the first round of the draft, on average, went Trout, Acuna, Yelich. Let me just get your opinion on this, because it's, it's a hot topic already this year. How do you do your top three picks?
2: I would do them just like that. Although I have seen a lot of drafts where Acuna is first, and Yelich is second, and then Trout is third. And I, you know, I personally like Mike Trout every single year puts up crazy numbers, and you're mm-hmm. guaranteed to get that, whereas... Christian Yelich has been a bit of a progression and Ronald Acuna just is breaking out, you know, in about a year and a half time. So it's, I, I love the large sample of Trout and we just know he's the best hitter in baseball. So I feel like banking that in the first round is is smart. Um, and Yelich is coming off of injury too. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I'm a big Acuna fan for the steals. I, I love Trout. Like if anybody wants Trout number one, I'm not going to argue with them ever. I just don't think he's going to run that much anymore. And Acuna yep. will, and that's yep. just a that's a big thing for me. That's the only difference. I really don't care. Like I've told people, if I can pick my spot in the draft, just give me the third pick. I'll take whichever one no one else takes, and then I'll get my next pick before the rest of them. So um, that's the way I look at it. I don't. I I won't argue with anybody. I prefer Acuna over Trout, and then Yellow's looks like a pretty firm three for me. But yeah. I I could see the argument for all three of them.
2: Yep, with the with the high ground ball rate, you know Yelich could fall in terms of power production, and I'm not sure he's going to continue stealing at that rate either. So Mm -hmm. he's, I agree, he is the solid third in my opinion.
1: And then it gets fun for the rest of the first round. You have Betts, Bellinger, Lindor, Story, Turner. First pitcher off the board: Garrett Cole, Bregman, Soto, Arenado. Were you surprised there weren't more pitchers in the first round?
2: Well, in pitcher list mock drafts, you would think so, but um, <laughs> I don't. I think he's he's a little bit better than the two, three, and four pitchers, and so I think he deserves to be in a tier of his own. He's I think he's the most dominant pitcher in baseball. Um, I, I personally do not like drafting pitchers early. Um, I especially don't like using pitchers with my first pick. So um, it's. Am I surprised? I'm more surprised than I am. I think it's the correct decision. Like, I think it's right to not take a pitcher with your first pick. And so um, I'm happy to see that the results sort of fell that way. But I would say, yeah, I am a
1: little surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised by it because it seems like more and more are going that way. I uh, My whole goal in a draft is to get two of the, I like to say, like top 20 pitchers if I can by the end of round four or five at the latest. So usually mm-hmm. I find myself taking them in three and four. I get a couple bats early couple pitchers and go from there that's usually my repertoire just kind of depends on the draft but I've been seeing more and more guys take pitchers early so it kind of stood out to me in this draft but we see it in the second round between picks 13 and 24 we got Verlater Degrom, Scherzer Bueller. they all went one way or another what's your uh take it's a it's a hot topic on Twitter these days are you a big believer in Walker Bueller potentially even moving higher up in the starting pitcher rankings by season's end oh
2: I don't know. I, I draft for floor early and mm-hmm. uh, ceiling late. So I'll, I'll shoot my shots later and I'll just take guys that I am confident I can bank production and guys who've done it for a number of years. I, Walker Buehler is, is, is obviously an amazing pitcher. Um, but there are innings concerns, there are injury concerns, there are dodgeritis concerns, which is something that Nick likes to say about (laughs) the Dodgers moving their pitchers on and off, uh, the injured list, which they do because they have a lot of pitchers so they can do that. Um, I, I don't know why you would personally, I don't know why you would take such a risk because the payoff is, is really no better than the other pitchers that you just listed. Um, whereas the floor is a lot lower. Um so like at best he's going to be like who else did you say, DeGrom and Verlander? Um yeah. but at worst he could pitch like hundred and thirty innings and it might not all even be that good if he's injured for some of it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh when you get into round three, Jordan Alvarez goes at pick twenty eight. Are you a believer? I know you like to get floor early and I'm with you, but some people are just loving them from Jordan. He went as high as pick seventeen and as low as pick thirty five. Are you uh, uh are you do you understand the concept of taking him early, which some people love to do for some reason?
2: Yeah, I do because if he plays to his full game to his full season pace, it's like forty something home runs, and you know he hit for over three hundred average last year, so you know he'd basically be what you want out of JD Martinez, uh, who is taken at the end of the first round uh, or right in the beginning of the second round, or he's kind of like what you're hoping for out of Nolan Arenado um so i get why you would take him early um again i wouldn't take him that early because it's a a ceiling floor game for me and it's basically just betting uh like there's such a small sample of him being that successful and we saw him sort of fall apart a little bit in the playoffs so um if i i don't think it's wrong to take him um in the the third round i think or the, the late second round like i think that's probably where he's gonna go and there may even be a point where I take him, but I'm not gonna be the guy drafting him at 17th overall.
1: We already talked about Jonathan VR probably going high, he's going up to 41 in, in this 12-teamer. Adalberto Mondesi went pick 42. Are you comfortable taking a guy like Mondesi that early?
2: Oh my God. I love Adalberto Mondesi. Yes, I'm I'm <laughs> extremely comfortable, and I think he should go earlier. Like he his stolen base rate, and I don't have it in front of me, but the like the rate at which he steals per plate appearance is not only the best in the major leagues, but it's like far and away the best in the major leagues. Like he, he runs so often. And so as long as he's healthy, um, even when he didn't even play a full season last year and he was still great, he still stole like 45 bases. Like he stole as many bases as as Trey Turner basically, but he didn't play a full season. Um, So you know what you can get with him and you're getting him four rounds after Trey Turner. I'm sorry, three rounds after Trey Turner. So I, I mean, I think he was a steal last year and he's going at the exact same price as he did last year, even though he showed he's clearly for real. And also he, he actually had a decent barrel rate and my predicted home runs metric says he should have had more than like six or whatever home runs he had. He should have had a lot more and he was one of the unluckiest players in baseball. So, you know, you got a little power and you got a ton of speed. He should be at least a third round pick, if not earlier. Like I would take him before I would take Jordan Alvarez.
1: Okay, that's one question I was going to say. You probably take him over VR. Uh, other short stops, did you take him over Xander Bogarts? Yes. Gleyber Torres. Definitely. Javi Baez,
2: yeah, and I I think it's closer with Baez. Um, I one of my, I we do bold predictions before every season, and mm-hmm. um, last year my bold prediction was that um, Mondesi would outearn Baez, and he did. And even he though he did, didn't yeah. play a full season, he did. Um, he was a lot better, and so um, I get why because Baez can be more of a five category contributor, and like Mondesi probably never going to hit like three hundred, but they're very similar contact guys. Like they both swing a ton. Um bias is going to hit a few more home runs and he plays in a friendlier lineup, but you know, those stolen bases are becoming really hard to find. And um I think Mondesi's potential to steal fifty or sixty bases could make him a first round pick the following year.
1: Last one, Mondesi or Fernando Tatis Jr.
2: Oh, that's tough. I I would probably take Tatis. Mm-hmm.
1: Um they're going almost twenty picks apart.
2: Yeah, so Tatis is going earlier, correct? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because my, my head says Montessi, um, whereas it's, but it's really hard to see a guy within that much earlier of an ADP and to buck the trend. Um, I would probably, I'll probably maybe I'll write a bold prediction saying he'll out earn Tatis. And I know Tatis' strikeout rate was really high and his BABIP was like 400. So he's easy. He's an easy candidate for regression, but he also steals, which gives him yeah. a nice floor. So it's, you know, I think, Tatis is probably the right pick, um, especially considering that everybody else thinks so, but I like Monesey a lot.
1: Yeah, the Tatis one's going to be a fun one for fantasy analysts throughout the season because he's going to be going so high because people love him so much. And if that thing falls apart, it's going to be quite the um, onslaught out there because people have planted their flags already. So it'll be real interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, going yeah, right, and if
2: you're, if you're, I don't I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, to cut you off, but if your second round pick, like flounders you're screwed you know and i was right his strikeout rate is 29.6 percent last year that's way above league average that's really high and his babbitt was 410 so you really you're getting a lot of luck um on babbitt and very little plate discipline it's hard to hit over 300 like that it's really hard it's not sustainable so my guess is he falls apart at least in batting average if not also in power and He may not be
1: worth what you pay for him on draft day. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out right after Mondesi, Clayton Kershaw, who doesn't have the innings like he usually does, but they've been very, very efficient. And then Shohei Otani goes right after him. And we have to just pretend he's starting pitcher only, which you're going to get one start a week, basically, from Otani. Are you comfortable taking Kershaw? You're probably more comfortable taking Kershaw. But Are you comfortable taking Kershaw and a starting pitching only Otani before guys like Corbin, Castillo, Nola, Severino, Morton, and company?
2: I probably wouldn't take Kershaw. I would just wait for those guys you just listed. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the same goes for Otani. especially. So in this ADP, you're saying he's only pitching eligible and he went this high?
1: That's the way I am under the influence when we did this draft. He's starting pitching eligible and he went pick 44. Maybe I am mistaken here because... I would be shocked to see him go this early, but that's what I, that's how it's listed on the sheet. So, yeah,
2: that's, I mean, that's, I agree. That's way too early if he's just starting pitching eligible. Um, I did see that Kershaw's strikeout rate improved from 23.3%, 31.1%. to And yes, I tweeted this out today um, from the first half to the second half in 2019, um, which is nice. And, you know, he's basically like a quality start and win machine last year. So you couldn't really count on him to be great, but, do I think he's going to be better than Corey Kluber and Patrick Corbin and Zach Greinke and other guys who are like pretty similar and also really good? I don't feel comfortable saying that. Like if you didn't give me their ADPs and you just told me their names in a vacuum, I'm not sure I would have said Clayton Kershaw was the best of the bunch. So mm-hmm. I would probably just wait for those other pitchers like Severino.
1: Yeah. I'm with you hundred percent on that. Uh, going after a, a slew of pitchers here. Gene Carlos Stanton is going to pick 47. Giancarlo Stanton used to be a back end of the first round pick time and time again, but apparently this last season made enough drafters in these drafts be like, nope, done. Given in the, the uh, expert mocks, the third expert mocks, he went as high as pick 30. So that was pretty telling. All the pitcherless mocks, 55, 55, 57. What's your take on Giancarlo? Because this is a guy, I know he's got 40, maybe even 50 home run power. I just, I hate t- saying injury prone, but by now it's getting crazy.
2: I'm getting some serious 2017 fantasy baseball draft vibes here like he had a uh, he had the, like so many injuries before that and he let people down and all these analysts were like well you know he's probably only going to give you 40 home runs anyway and like a 270 batting average so why would you take him in the first round like why are we taking him in the first round so he falls to like the 4th round and I took him everywhere and then he hit 59 home runs yep 59 so nobody nobody does that so I I get why he fell again. The exact same thing happened in 2018. He kind of disappointed. And then in 2019, he didn't play. Um, But this is a guy with like first round ceiling. And I mean, clearly from his MVP season, if he shows it, he's a huge um, value at this price. Um, I'll probably be in on him at this price. Um, The only hesitation I have is that home runs are ubiquitous and like all hitters are hitting them now. So he's not as valuable as he was two years ago, even if he does hit, on his value, but this is a good enough price where I feel comfortable taking him.
1: All right. Just in a vacuum, I'm going to list some of these young names that kind of all go together. Like Vigraro Junior's picked 58. You got Keston here at 67. Eloy Jimenez at 68. And even guys like Boba Shetz at 75. They're going earlier than a lot of talented, you know, I guess they're, they're talented too, but a lot of more like veteran aged players. Are you good with taking some of these guys so early? Like and as I'm good with the other ones. I don't know if I'm a hundred percent on board with what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I feel pretty similarly. Like I kind of like the the gains Eloy made last year and power and strikeout rate. I mean, he was really coming into form at the end of the year. So if, you know, you took him around pick 70 or whatever, I think that's fine. And there's uh, a little potential for value there. Um, the others, I, I don't feel comfortable drafting that early. I didn't feel comfortable drafting Vlad jr. That early last year. I never drafted him. Um, Bo Bichette is not fast and he I think he had a poor stolen base conversion rate so he may not they may not let him run um and you know who was the other it was those two Eloy and Keston Hira. And Keston Hira had like exactly like um exactly like um Fernando Tessis Jr., he had an inflated Babip and um, a really high strikeout rate. So he's not, I don't think he's going to hit 300 again. Um, you know, all three of those guys are going before, yeah, a 31% strikeout rate and a 402 Babip. And he hit 303. That's not going to, it just doesn't happen, you know, and mm-hmm. it's a small sample. So that's why he was able to do it, but it's probably not going to be able to do it again. And he doesn't do enough outside of that. He's not like a big power hitter or anything. Same thing with Bichette. So, Those are not guys I would take in the top 100. Um, Vlad, I could see closer to the end of the top 100. But, like, you can get a guy like Jose Abreu, uh, whose ADP in these drafts was 89, um, who consistently hits, like, 285, 300 with 30-plus home runs and uh, 90 runs and 120 RBI. Like, you can get that later than all these guys, and you can bank that production in a good lineup. And there are a lot of other examples, too, I don't see why you would take any of these guys. You know, I don't see what they give you that he doesn't or other similar veterans that are way more likely to give you value like Nelson Cruz
1: um, than them. Jose Abreu never gets the love he deserves. I love the consistency he brings to your lineup. Makes that draft pick so easy because you just slot him in and you know what you're getting. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm with you there on guys like that. These young kids could be good and all, and they might be the, the make or break picks. Who knows? but I find it hard to uh, take those gambles. A A gamble that hasn't paid off really well in recent years, but the stuff continues to be so intriguing. The 23rd starting pitcher off the board at pick 69 is Noah Syndergaard. Are you a Syndergaard believer or are you just done with him?
2: I think that's fine. I think that that value is the first time where I felt comfortable taking him. Um, I didn't personally in the draft that I participated in, but if, if you were going at, at, pick 69, um, I think that that's fine relative to the prior years when he was like pick 38 or pick 30, you know, and, and when he had come off that like 180 inning pitch season, uh, maybe like 2017 or 16, where he was just like awesome. And then he just totally fell apart, um, and got hurt. And then he fell apart again last year. And, um, I think that the pieces are all there and the Mets just need to like put it together so that he's throwing the right pitches in the right places. I'm not sure that's ever going to happen, but the risk that it doesn't is reflected in his draft price for the first time, as opposed to prior years where we had not much of a sample and we were betting on him because he throws hundred miles per hour. Whereas now it's okay. I think because he's going later.
1: No, that that makes a lot of sense. It, now it's okay. He's going later. Hopefully it pans out one of these days. Um, as you go through the ADP, were there anything that kind of stood out to you? Because we could go keep going player by player. But i was just wondering on your opinion, were there any kind of standout picks or are you still evaluating the uh, the ADP? Ben Palmer
2: wrote a great article uh, going through this. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give some of the highlights that I took away from his um, his article where he he goes through the full ADP and he gives you surprises, undervalued and overvalued players. And the surprises, the most surprising to me was DJ Lemayhu with a high of 23. I think that's insane. I do not think you should draft DJ Lemayhu 23rd overall. Um, I'm sure you agree. Uh, and I'm a yes. Yankee fan, so yes. there's no, no bias. Um, let's see. In the overvalued players, um, Victor Robles stood out. Um, I think that he is someone who hits for very, very little power. Um, As Ben noted, a 23% stat cast hard hit rate, which is bottom 4% of the major leagues. Um, I'm not convinced that he can even hit 255 like he did last year. And so basically, you're kind of paying for like bad Malik Smith with... So like Malik Smith, but with fewer stolen bases because he only had 28 last year. And for some reason, he's being drafted on average at 71st overall. Um, And then one more um uh, was the so oh so two more ben combined them so mm-hmm. he's tricked me on this podcast live um but he he combined andrew mccutcheon and justin upton who had adps of 220 and 247 Steals, absolute steals i, I completely agree mm-hmm. um both of them i even liked mccutcheon last year when he was like yep. pick 120 and i liked upton last year when he was like pick 100 mm-hmm. they were Those are consistent guys. McCutcheon's going to hit for a decent average, steal 15-20 bases, hit 20-25 home runs, uh, get a bunch of runs in RBI. Upton's going to hit even more home runs like he always does. Um, Even if his exit velocity fell last year, which I'm not sure it did, that would be because of injury and for no other reason. Um, Mm -hmm. He's only 32 years old. So, um, you know, Justin Upton, one of the most consistent power hitters in the game. Um, With a full healthy offseason, he could be an excellent value at ADP 246.8.
1: I love the point you made on Upton, especially because we talked about a Brady being like the back back of the baseball card consistent. Upton is that guy. He was hurt almost all of last season. So I, I just I literally with the track record of a guy like Upton, I just throw last season out the window. I don't even yeah. care about last season. He's already come out and said he's having a regular off season. He'll be ready for spring training. Like he's already telling you he's fine, which is all I need to hear. So I'm a big fan of that. You know, you put a healthy trout with him, maybe a healthy Otani in the lineup. That's a whole different ballpark. Whole, I mean, a whole different ball game with those guys. So big, big fan of that Justin Upton comment. And I'm with you. I was all over Andrew McCutchen last year. I was pumped when he went to Philadelphia. I was happy with his draft cost. Now he's gonna be this much cheaper. It's like, okay, I dig it. <laughs> let's 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 do this thing. So, uh, and these are a couple names that are very good to know because in a lot of your deeper leagues, five outfielder leagues, and that could have affected this because it was a three outfielder draft. We got to keep that in mind. But you still had two utilities, so who knows? Like, even a guy – I'd rather have McCutcheon and Upton, but if you're talking outfield, you got A.J. Pollock going about 226. He's got the injury concerns, but when he's healthy, he's outstanding. Um, Another guy that has injury concerns once in a while, but if you're looking for late speed in the outfield, Adam Eaton's going 250. Um, It's all these kind of veteran guys that you can almost pencil in what they're going to do, kind of got pushed down because a lot of these young kids got pushed up. So, like – Okay, a guy that gets no respect at pick 293, Sin Su Chu. You want to talk consistent, he's consistent. So I don't know. It's interesting. That's why I love, that's why I kind of just want to get your opinion because I could rabbit hole this thing for a long time and just start you know nitpicking everything. But that's what the listeners need to go to PitcherList.com and go check out all that good stuff. Speaking of PitcherList.com, Dan, before we call it a night, why want to let everybody know where they can find you and what you have out there and what you might be working on.
2: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Fantasy underscore Esquire. Um, it's a terrible pun on the fact that I'm a lawyer. I, I might do uh, DF Esquire because I kind of like that, but I don't that's play funny. that much DFS. I know you do. Um, yeah. The pun is better <laughs> that way. Uh, working on, I guess, um, I did a fun thing with um, comparing two players but not giving you their names, and I know that's sort of um, – played out at this point but um you know like a name brand guy and then uh, a more generic guy who's going all out later in drafts and just sort of identifying the flaw and why one should be going much later and one should be going much earlier and um and it was jd davis and chris bryant um and people were receptive to it so i i might continue that kind of trend with um oh and the thesis is that i like jd davis more than chris bryant but um Spoiler alert. In I don't event, disagree with you.
1: <laughs> don't disagree. And
2: I might do it with relievers and starting pitchers. Cause it was, it was a lot of fun to write it. Um, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. I got to get more stuff out for Razzball too. Um, but yeah, so I, I really do want to thank you for having me on Bubba. It's been a lot of fun. Um, hopefully we can do this again soon.
1: We will, we will definitely do it again. I love having you on, uh, talking baseball with you. You cover the, the gamut. You can, make uh very smart things sound like i can understand them so it's always always fun chatting with you on that and anytime we can uh line it up i am always down to talk some baseball but everybody go check him out on twitter at fantasy underscore esquire dan's a great follow and a great guy so go give him a follow and check it all out but until next time this was benched with bubba episode 228 talking barrels ballpark factors adps and much much more catch you guys later